Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. Greg was, uh, Greg Skipper was preaching in Jude a few weeks ago. And he said he's going to take five years to get through Jude. Well, hang on, because it might take 20 to get through John. But it'll be worth it. John 5, 1 through 8. A well-dressed man came up to heaven's pearly gates. You all have heard the story. And St. Peter greets the man. And he says, what can I do for you? And the man says, I'd like to get into heaven. And St. Peter says, we'd love to have you here. But before you enter in, you have to earn a thousand points. Well, the man says, that shouldn't be a problem. I've been a good man all my life. I've been very involved in civic things. I've given a lot of money to charities. And for 25 years, I was the chairman of the YMCA. As St. Peter's writing this all down, he says, that's a wonderful record. That's worth one point. The man's taken aback. And he says, I was married to my wife for 45 years. I was always faithful. We had five children, three boys, two girls. I loved them. I, I spent a lot of time with them. I talked to them all the time. I gave them a good education. I took good care of them. They turned out well. I was a real family man. St. Peter says, I'm very impressed with your record. That's two points. Now the man is sweating profusely. His knees are shaking, and he says, you don't understand. I was active in my church. I went every Sunday. I gave every time the plate was passed. I was a deacon. I was an elder. I sang in the choir. I was a Sunday school teacher for 25 years. And St. Peter said, your record is certainly admirable. That's another point. And then he says, let me add those up. St. Peter's not much of a mathematician, as you can see. So he says, that's one, that's two, that's three. You only have 997 to go. Desperate, the man falls to his face, and he cries out in desperation, but for the grace of God, nobody gets in this place. And St. Peter looks at him and smiles and says, congratulations, you've just received a thousand points. You know what? Most Americans, whether you believe it or not, believe this story except for the last line. They believe that you have to earn not maybe a thousand points, but maybe one or two or three. In fact, most believe they're not even that strict on themselves. They believe in Joe's teeter-totter theory. You know, as long as your good outweighs your bad, you're going to make it there. Right? That's what most Americans believe. In fact, most Americans believe as long as you're American and you die, it's justification by death. You're going to get to heaven. You ever been to a funeral where somebody's not going to heaven? Not many, right? 
This morning we're going to look at John chapter 5. And we're going to see just the opposite. We're going to see God's amazing, wonderful grace given to a man who doesn't deserve a thing. Let's look at John 5. This is the word of God. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep's gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet. And began to walk. The first thing that I want us to look at this morning is it's history. It's his story. The Apostle John writes this story and he re reveals in the first two verses that he's not talking about mythology, he's not talking about a fairy tale or make believe but he's talking about an actual historical event. He tells us the timing of the event is during the Feast of the Jews. Now this was probably, some scholars say that this was the Passover. I don't think so, because Jesus was by himself. The disciples weren't with him. So this was probably some minor feast, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And then it also tells us that the event, of course, took place in Jerusalem. And then it says the miracle... The specific location of this miracle is at the pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate. So we see by this, the details of this, that Jesus is talking, or John is talking about an actual historical event. Now you all are probably thinking, no duh. But the problem is, with most historians, is that they have an anti super natural bias and so whenever you bring up a miracle in the bible like we're going to bring up in this chapter what the historians will do is they'll say ah, the bible's not historical they'll just throw it out in fact this story itself has been questioned up to the late 1800s because this pool had never been discovered but every time, I want you to hear this, every time the Bible is questioned, historically, the historical nature of this book is proven over and over and over again. Going all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah, they doubted that, and then the archaeologists found it. Jericho, same thing, and they found it. In fact, in 1888, while they were doing excavation 
at St. Anne's Church in the northeast corner of Jerusalem, this pool or reservoir was discovered. Pretty cool, huh? So what I've learned in my studies of the scriptures is that when you question the historical nature or accuracy of the Bible, then you might as well, if you question that, you might as well question all historical books. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you one example. Every college or university that has a philosophy department teaches that Plato was an actual historical person. And I'm not here to question that. He was. But you know what they use to prove that? They have seven manuscripts that Plato wrote. Seven manuscripts. That's it. And there's a thousand years between the actual uh, original copy and the manuscripts themselves. More than a thousand years. You know, that's a long time. Now, in comparison, guess what? The New Testament has 24,000, did you hear me? Thousand manuscripts. And guess how much time is in between the original and the manuscripts themselves, the copies? 25 years in some of them. 25 years. I mean, you guys have stuff at your home that's more than 25 years old, right? Birth certificates. The Bible is a very accurate historical document. And so don't let anybody, especially college students, high school students, don't let anybody tell you and question the historical accuracy of the Bible. Because if they question that, you might as well question all historical books. Now, let's get back to this passage. That was kind of a commercial break here. Uh, go back to the passage. Look at verses 1 and 2, or 2 and 3. It says this. And we're going to look at man's helpless condition. Man's helpless condition. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep's gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In this lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. The NASB says withered. Um, so we have this multitude gathered around this pool. And they're under the porticos in the shade, uh, a group of people. And you notice that Jesus doesn't hesitate. I love this. Jesus doesn't hesitate to hang around with poor people and with sick people. We've already seen that. We saw that in chapter 4, remember? What does he do with Samaritans? He goes through Samaria. He doesn't go around it. He goes to see the Samaritans, even though they were half Jew and half Gentile. He doesn't avoid them. And he doesn't avoid the Samaritan woman. He loves her. He gives her the gospel. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were more concerned about their own righteousness. They were concerned about being ceremonially unclean. And so when you're concerned about your own righteousness... You're not concerned about others. Um, and so they didn't hang around with people that were sick. And they didn't hang around with Samaritans, of course. They didn't want to be unclean. 
Why does Jesus go to this group of individuals? Why did Jesus go to this individual man? Did he see something in his heart? Did he see a great faith? Did he see a man that was on the verge of repentance? Or did he just see a man who was in a helpless condition? Is that how God sees all of mankind? Does he see them as spiritually blind and lame and paralyzed? Well, listen to what Romans 5, 6 says. It says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice it doesn't say he died for the godly. He died for the ungodly. He died for the helpless. The word helpless here, or powerless, in this points to a time when we, as non-Christians, could do nothing to win God's favor. In fact, if you think of the word helpless, it can also give the connotation of something being impossible. It's impossible for us to please God when we are in an unregenerate state. The word impossible can be used in such a way that if the circumstances change, then the impossible can become possible. One example of this could be if, if I said that I was flat broke and couldn't pay my bills. I do have a wedding coming, so that might be somewhat true. Um, but if I couldn't pay my bills, right, and said, I am flat broke, it's impossible to pay my bills, but then all of a sudden, I get a mailbox experience, or I get a million-dollar check, then the impossible becomes possible with a change of circumstances, right? But that's not true when we're talking about salvation. When you're talking in the realm of salvation, it is impossible for a man to save himself. Turn with me to John, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17. And this is a familiar story about the rich young ruler. And you all know this story. The rich young ruler comes up and says, Good teacher to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's sitting there saying, your goodness cannot, it doesn't even compare to God's goodness. Your goodness is like two inches compared to the uh, distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles. Two inches is nothing to 92 million God miles. God is infinitely good. Man is not. And this rich young ruler didn't get it. So Jesus says, go and keep the law. And what does he say? Done it my whole life. Done it my whole life. And what's amazing about this story is, here's this young man saying, I am, he, he might not have intended to say this, but what he's saying is, I'm as good as God. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. He's saying, I can be as good as God. 
And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. So he says, go and sell everything you have and come follow me. And he won't do it. And he goes away sad. And what's the response of the disciples? I love it. They're thinking, if a rich man can't get to heaven, then there's no way we'll get to heaven. And so they say, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with, here comes the word impossible again, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things, all things are possible. Kind of reminds me of a time that I was giving the gospel to a family member. And, you know, I gave her the gospel. I said, if you come to faith in Christ, if you repent of your sins, then what Jesus does is he forgives all of your sins. Past, present, and future. And then I said, he also takes his righteousness and puts it to your account so that he sees you as holy and righteous and perfect all the time. And she's just sitting there with this puzzled look on her face. And she finally looks at me and says, that's too easy. I've never gotten a response like that before. That's too easy. I need to do something. It's almost like the rich young ruler. You know, I can do this. It would almost be like this man in this story saying, I can get down to the pool on my own. I don't need Jesus. I could, you know, I, I was like flabbergasted that she said that. She didn't realize her helpless condition. Neither did the rich young ruler. And in a sense, neither does this man here in this story. So we see here a picture in this story of a fallen world as spiritually crippled. Look back at, go back to John 5. Notice what it says. In this lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. You see, the blind cannot come to Christ because they cannot recognize him. John 9, 39 through 41 says this about the world's blindness. It says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Man, that's a scary statement, isn't it? Your sin remains because you say you can see. The second problem that the world has is that they are spiritually lame. Jesus says this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It reminds me of a story in Mark chapter 2. You remember the story. It's a lame man, and he wants to go to Jesus. He can't get there. He's lame. So four of his friends put him in a stretcher and carry him to Jesus, right? And there's a crowd around the house, and they can't get in. So what do they do? They go on the roof, and they dig a hole in the roof. And they lower their friend right before Jesus, and looking up, 
He heals the man because of his friend's faith. But what's amazing is that man could never get to Jesus on his own. He had to have somebody help him. And it's the same with us. We are spiritually lame before we are regenerate. And the third problem of this world is they are spiritually paralyzed. Um, They cannot reach out their hand to Christ. You've heard somebody say before, um, I was paralyzed with fear. I could do nothing. I was so scared I couldn't even reach out my hand. Well, that's what's going on here. When you are spiritually paralyzed, you can't do a thing. And that's what the world is like. They need Christ to reach out to them. And that's what it says in John 10, 28. It says, Christ takes hold of his sheep and will never let them go. What happens is Christ has to come to us. We don't come to him. He has to change our heart. And then he allows us to respond by repentance and faith. But before that, we are helpless. We are helpless before we meet Christ and receive his amazing grace. So let's look at that grace. Uh, go back to verse, the end of verse 3. And let me explain this little parenthesis. It says, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well, from whatever disease which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been in a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? So we see here at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 an explanation of why these guys are sitting around the pool, why all these sick people are waiting there. Now, this is a scribe putting this into this text. This was not originally there. All the ancient manuscripts don't have this in there. Okay? So this was later put in there by a scribe as an explanation of what's going on to help you to better understand the story. But it's not telling us that this is true. This is not part of John's inspired writing. Just want you to know that. But notice in verse 5, that it says this man has been in this condition for 38 years. Now think about that. For most of you, 38 years would have been your entire life. Immobile, not able to walk, suffering for 38 years. And in that day and age, think about this, in that day and age, there was no electricity, no electric wheelchairs, no wheelchairs, Nothing. This man was in a helpless position, right? I was reading a book years, a couple years ago. It was written by Tim Hansel, and it's called "You Got to Keep Dancing." It's one of my mom's was one of my mom's favorite books. And in this book, this man has a climbing accident. He's climbing, rock climbing. He falls thirty feet, lands on his back, breaks all kinds of bones in his back, right? And is in constant pain for the rest of his life. So, and the book is on the back shelf. If you want to read it, it's only like 100 pages. Wonderful book on how to deal with pain. But um, in that, he tells a story 
how he goes to visit Johnny Erickson Tata, who you all know has been paraplegic since she was 17 years old. So he visits her, and he goes away from that visit mad. And I'm shaking my head. He's mad. And you know why he's mad? Because he thinks Johnny's in better shape than he is. He thinks, well, God, she doesn't have to deal with pain all the time. I do. So he was mad. So he's driving home, you know, fuming and, and all that. And he finally gets home and he pulls up and, and his kids come running out of the house. And they come up and wrap their arms around him. And he wraps his arms around them. And immediately he's convicted of his sin. Because guess what? He can feel his kids wrapping their arms around him. And he can feel him wrapping his arms around them. Johnny can't. Both those two are in tremendous suffering and have been that way their entire life. But think of this man. 38 years of suffering. And Jesus comes up to him. <laughs> Jesus comes up to him and knows, because he's the son of God, knows that he's been in this condition a long time. And what does he say? Do you want to get well? Wow. Um, that question puzzles me. Does it puzzle you? Um, it would be like me going up to Johnny Erickson and saying, you know, after you've been paraplegic for 60 years, do you want to walk again? Right? Um, and there have been times when I go up to visitors and I'll ask them a question and then I'll sit there and shake my head as I walk away thinking, that was the dumbest question I could have ever asked. So if you ever see me walking away from you as a visitor and see me shaking my head, that's, that's what I'm thinking. But this question that Jesus asked isn't a dumb question. Of course not. What is he asking it for? Why? He's going to the heart of the matter. He, he's going to the, to the hope of the heart. He's asking, what is your hope in? What are you hoping in? And look at his answer. Look at his answer in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir... I have no man, and notice he doesn't know who Jesus is. We'll, we'll find that out in the next sermon. But he doesn't know it's Jesus, okay? Doesn't know it's Jesus. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So, here we see this man is in a hopeless state. This man appears to have lost his trust in God, he's lost his trust in his friends, and even in himself. He is in despair. In, in fact, I, I believe he's in a place worse than despair. What's worse than despair? He's in bitterness without hope. Now, how, how do I know that? Well, when a person is bitter about their circumstances. Notice he says, others step in front of me. You know, others step in front of me. So it sounds like this has happened more than once. Um, he's bitter. And, and you know what? When you're bitter about your circumstances, 
Who are you bitter against? Yeah, God. So he's not only bitter about his circumstances, he's, he's bitter against God. So what did this man do about it? Nothing. He's just sitting there. He could do absolutely nothing, right? Why did, I'm going to ask you this again, why did Jesus pick this man? Was it because of his faith? Was it because of his hope? Was it because of his love? No. In fact, he brought nothing to the table that day. All he brought that day was hopelessness, despair, and even bitterness. Wow. And you know what? Isn't that a glorious thing? You're thinking, what? Because it makes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ displayed in a much greater way. This man did nothing. And Jesus Christ did everything for him. So Jesus responds to him. And he says, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately, the man becomes well. He picks up his pallet, and he begins to walk. And the word here in John, in immediate, indicates that this healing wasn't partial, it wasn't a process, it was instantaneous, and it was complete, lacking in nothing. The word immediate also shows that this was an act of God. This is something that only God could do. This is the third miracle in the Gospel of John, and it points to the deity of Christ. This healing also points to the way that God heals us spiritually. You know, we didn't go looking for Christ. He came looking for us. And when He found us, He healed our hearts before we could do one thing thing and then we respond we respond by faith and repentance and even that is a gift from God listen listen to how Isaiah describes it in Isaiah 53 5 I love this he says but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed and healed completely colossians 2 10 says this for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete do you believe that believer do you believe that that he has made you complete lacking in nothing one commentator said this in closing an english bishop in the 17th century wrote these words i cannot pray except i sin i cannot preach but i sin 
I cannot administer nor receive the holy sacrament, but I sin. My repentance, my very repentance, needs to be repented of. And the tears I shed need washing in the blood of Christ. This bishop was right, but as soon as I am able to accept the fact that I am an ungodly man by nature, and therefore completely unable... Let me wait a second. This bishop was correct in his evaluation. But as soon as I am able to accept the fact that I am an ungodly man by nature, and therefore completely unable to rise to meet God by any inborn effort, then I can also know that my sins have been dealt with in Christ and that he gives new life to all who trust him for their salvation. Where are you this morning spiritually? Are you still trying to get to the pool on your own? God doesn't help those who help themselves. He only helps those who are helpless. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace that you give to us daily. Father, you are so faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you've given us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to just marvel in it. Help us to glory in it. And then help us to respond to it by loving you more than anything else. Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.